Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. Exciting news from City Housing Hamilton. An open and shut case when it comes to your rights in the COVID-19 vaccination certification system. Hamilton's Commonwealth Games Bid Group takes another step forward. A new report says the City of Hamilton must improve its diversity, equity and inclusion. The two Michaels are finally home. And first it was lumber and computer chips. Now there could be a rubber shortage. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. A special ribbon cutting ceremony in Hamilton on Friday to mark the reopening of the Ken Sobel Tower. Now, many of you know that uh, Mr. Sobel was a, a Canadian broadcasting icon who once owned CHML Radio and was also one of the founders of CHCH TV. The Ken Sobel Tower is a building on McNabb Street North that is an affordable housing complex for seniors. And joining us to chat about this exciting project is Tom Hunter, the CEO of City Housing Hamilton. Tom, good morning and welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rick. Thank you. This building could have been sold. It could have been torn down years ago, but it wasn't. And looking at it now and what it's being used for, everyone involved should be commended. You have to be ecstatic with how things have turned out. Uh, yes, we are. We're, we're very pleased. And it's certainly uh, important that I you know, uh, mention that the north end of Hamilton. This community wanted City Housing Hamilton, wanted the city to keep affordable housing in the North End. And so that certainly, you know, was a message that uh, the, the, the board and the staff heard. And, uh, you know, when, when we had that kind of commitment, then the question was, you know, what, what do we do with the, the Ken Sobel Tower in terms of a, of a retrofit? And when we, you know, looked at what was happening across the industry, actually across the world, and you know, saw this passive house uh, retrofit standard, which was had been done in certain countries. We thought that it certainly had applicability to this uh, tower, and would you know not only help to certainly improve living environments for the tenants, but it also helped with the uh, with um, the, the environmental controls in, in the building, using far less energy, you know, decreasing greenhouse gas emissions. And it, it, in terms of the kind of a complete package for good living and good for the environment and sustainability, we, uh, we proceeded with this project. This uh, 18-story Ken Sobel Tower, uh, paint a picture for our listeners. What, what does it look like inside and out? Right. Well, I think I first have to you know, mention it has one of the most spectacular views of the Hamilton Harbor, so we wanted to maintain that. And in order to get the kind of the high performance and the, the comfort uh, controls within the building, uh, 10 inches of, uh, of uh, material was put uh, on the outside of the building, right, as insulation. And all of the windows were replaced uh, with triple glazed windows. And so once again, you know, really um, good at temperature control. And in fact, we, we took the balconies off and then just put in Juliet doors. But in taking the balconies off, there's not that thermal conduction of the, the, the cold of the concrete into the building or the heat, of the, the heat from the concrete in the, in the summer to heat or cool the unit. So once again, all working towards how do we get a very, very comfortable building uh, for the tenants. And each one of their units is, is climate controlled, all modernized. And it, uh, it takes the, uh, just the uh, energy of three uh, light bulbs to uh, heat or cool the units. 
Wow, that's pretty phenomenal. We're chatting with Tom Hunter, the CEO of City Housing Hamilton, about a new affordable housing complex for seniors in the city called the Ken Sobel Tower. Uh, how many units are in this building? There's a, there's 146. Uh, the, the majority of them are, are bachelors, and there are uh, probably a third are one bedroom, and there's one two bedroom. But the other important uh, point to note is that when we were looking at the uh, redesign and also to optimize funding from the national housing strategy, 20% of the units were um, created as accessible. And so now this building has over 30 units. Uh, with, a, with fully accessible uh, for seniors. So that was a real bonus that we were able to achieve in this work, in this retrofit. Now, are all these 146 units spoken for, or can people still apply to get in? People can certainly a- apply to get in. So we, in order to do this extensive retrofit, the tenants moved out of the building, and there's a handful who, who plan to come back. But as, as time passed from when people moved out to come back, um, it was few. And also we did change the profile of the building to seniors. So, um, you know, not not all of the people could come back. So there are certainly, um, um, you know, people can apply through the, the uh, access to housing with the city of Hamilton. And are there similar projects elsewhere, even in Hamilton or around uh, the province? Uh, in terms of this tower house renewal, this complete tower renewal, uh, no, this is the first of its kind uh, in North America. Now, uh, cities such as uh, uh, Windsor and Toronto, they're doing they're they're doing tower renewal in stages. So they may replace the windows and then put on more extensive insulation. This is the first project of its kind where it, it was a complete uh, retrofit, interfit passive house retrofit. It's great stuff. It, t- it fills two buckets, tackling climate change and housing affordability all in one. Tom, really appreciate the time. Fantastic project. Hopefully more of these are uh, going to come down the line. Thanks for joining us today. Yes. Thank you very much, Rick. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Ontario Human Rights Commission has issued a policy paper on vaccine mandates and proof of vaccination requirements. It says, quote, A person who chooses not to be vaccinated based on personal preference does not have the right to accommodation under the Human Rights Code. Interesting stuff. Greg Sales is an associate with Samfiro Tumarkin LLP and joins us this morning on Good Morning Hamilton. Greg, good morning. How are you? Oh, good morning, Rick. How's it going? Not too bad. Uh, this seems to be a pretty open and shut case, or is it? Well, I mean, yes and no. It depends the angle you're looking at it. I mean, the Human Rights Commission has looked at it and, and taken a, a pretty literal stance. I mean, what a lot of people don't realize is that you know political beliefs don't qualify as a human right. The human rights in Ontario refer to, you know, the right to be free from discrimination on the basis of race, ancestry, uh, place of origin, color, citizenship, creed, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, you know, age, marital status or disability, those type of things. And political beliefs are not one of them. So the anti-vax crowd that says, you know, wearing a mask or getting a vaccine infringes on their rights and that they shouldn't have to adhere to these vaccine certificate rules, they really don't have a leg to stand on. No. And, and what's important to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, what, what, what businesses are allowed to do uh, for discriminating against customers is very different from what they can do against employees. So, you know, you'll, you're hearing a lot that 
these vaccination passports, you know, they don't actually apply to employees because employers typically don't have the right to impose mandatory vaccination policies where the vaccination is mandatory, the policy itself is, is mandatory, but um, whereas, you know, you don't have a right to be a customer in somewhere. Yet there are some companies, University Health Network comes to mind, where if, uh, you know, employees don't get vaccinated, they will be penalized, whether through, you know, suspension or ultimately termination. Do they have the right to do that? Well, they don't have the right, but it becomes more of a practical issue for the employee. And, you know, what it comes down to is, are you willing to lose your job about if you don't want to get the vaccine? Now, you if you're terminated, it, it's, it wouldn't be for cause. You would be entitled to severance. And so, you know, at, at that point in time, then it becomes uh, just, you know, us dealing with what they are entitled to upon termination. But if, you know, if you can't afford to lose your job, it becomes a practical issue for you. And are you willing to uh, stand by this argument of, OK, I, I refuse to get the, the vaccine and I'm willing to lose my job and, you know, have to go through a lawsuit to try and recover severance. And that would be the same, I guess, scenario if someone was unvaccinated and not willing to get vaccinated to seek employment. Their their employers uh, can say no if you are unvaccinated uh, on that basis, correct? It is much easier for prospective employers to not hire someone who is unvaccinated than for active employers to fire someone legitimately for not being vaccinated. So how does the medical exemption play a part in all this? Well, the College of Physicians has been pretty clear that uh, members are only to give medical notes uh, stating that someone can't get the vaccine for medical reasons in extremely limited circumstances. And so, you know, this includes um, being allergic to one of the active ingredients, which, you know, quite interestingly, it doesn't happen very often because the active ingredient is present in almost all medication. So, you know, if you're taking if you're taking blood thinner medication, then, you know, presumably you can't also say that you can't get the vaccine. You know, there's there's that. But at the same time, um, there are situations where if you're being actively treated for something else that may conflict, um, you know, they're investigating a health situation. Then those are circumstances where a medical exemption may apply. Um, but people should know that the college has cautioned members against giving these notes. Our guest is Gregory Sills, associate with Samfiro Tumarkin LLP here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're chatting about the Ontario Human Rights Commission issuing a policy paper on vaccine mandates and proof of vaccination requirements as saying... A person who chooses not to be vaccinated based on personal preference does not have the right to accommodation under the Human Rights Code. When it comes to uh, vaccine exemptions or medical exemptions, can an employer request proof of an exemption? Well, that part of that comes to be, well, for, for, for an exemption, yeah. If you, if you want to have, if you want to prove that you, you are exempt from getting it, of course, you, you have to provide the proof that you are actually exempt from getting it. Um, you know, the, under the Human Rights Code, there are basically only two potential exemptions that, that realistically apply to the COVID vaccine, and that's medical, as we discussed, or religious. And uh, as far as the religious front goes, you know, that's something that isn't based on your interpretation of principles or scripture, but rather on the active teachings. So if you're going to make a claim for religious exemption, you'll likely need a letter of support from a local religious leader. And so, yeah, if you want to claim an exemption, either religious or medical, you're going to have to provide proof of it. There was a protest at the Eaton Centre uh, over the weekend, anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers protesting outside. It, uh, it got heated at times. There was some pushing and shoving. Actually, two people have been charged in the case uh, with assault after a security guard was assaulted. But that comes down to the no shoes, no shirts, I guess, no shot service 
uh, application, correct? Yeah, and again, as a as an individual, you don't have a right to go shop at Eaton Center. You have to abide by their rules. It's private property. Same thing if you're going to a Leafs game or a Raps game. You know, you don't have the right to be there, and a lot of people are confusing privileges with rights. Yeah, it is a hot topic in this province for sure. Gregory, really appreciate the time today. Of course, happy to do it. Gregory Sills, Associate Samfiro Tumarkin, LLP, chatting about the Ontario Human Rights Commission offering their views and clarification on restrictions and regulations when it comes to vaccinations and those who are against such. There was a, um, a poll over the weekend that found that uh, tensions are growing between these two groups, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, whether they are friends, family, or complete strangers. And it found that three out of four respondents held negative views of those who are not vaccinated. The poll is giving you a big picture, a broad picture of what's going on. But what I'm saying is that uh, that the broad picture of the tensions being described gets reflected, I, 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 my sense is, uh, in conversations across, you know, family members where someone's not vaccinated or or amongst friends where you hear like my this friend's not vaccinated and you can and you're upset with them and you can have some heated conversation. That is Association of Canadian Studies President Jack Jedwab uh, touching on the poll results. It was a Leger survey that uh, um, surveyed more than 1,500 Canadians uh, online earlier this month, and this is this is a topic around the dinner table. Had this conversation uh, yesterday at my parents' house about uh, the vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Now everyone in our family is vaccinated, but the um, the relationship between those who are and those who aren't, especially within a family, can be quite, quite hurtful. If there's an anniversary or birthday, a special occasion, uh, or you don't want your kids to play with your brother and sister-in-law's kids or whatever the case is because someone in the household is not vaccinated, it is straining some relationships. And um, that, that is only being ratcheted up here in the last few weeks and, and last few months as these uh, certificate programs, these regulations continue to be uh, tweaked and improved, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, as I said, straining some relationships in the household. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Hamilton's quest to host the 2030 Commonwealth Games is taking its next step. And here to chat about it is Hamilton 100 spokesperson Lou Fraporti. Lou, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Good morning, Rick. So what's happening today? <laughs> well, where to, where to begin? Um, we're in the midst of transitioning now from what was a domestic phase of the bid process to the international phase. And that involves our working with a variety of stakeholders, including the province, federal government, First Nations, an increasing number of community groups and organizations around the development of that international bid that hopefully will be submitted to the Games Federation in the early part of next year as the Canadian bid for the 2030 Games. And that will be something that we're launching publicly in the month of October, uh, providing a good deal of information to the public, not just in Hamilton, but regionally, um, launching a new website, etc. And that's what prompted uh, our discussion this morning. So in terms of moving from the domestic to the international bid phase, more or less you're just getting information from all these key stakeholders. Is that fair to say? Actually, it's more the reverse right now. We're providing information to those stakeholders in what is referred to as a concept review process, which then allows all of those groups to work towards the finalization of what's referred to as the multi-party agreement. And that's the, the legal agreement that everybody enters into for the purposes of defining, resourcing, and delivering the games. 
that begins with us and, and the Hamilton uh, contingent bid group in providing the broad outlines of what that bid will look like. And I'll tell you, as the public will become aware um, quite soon, what it looks like now is quite dissimilar from what it looked like as we began the process and then began discussions around a potential 2026 bid. This new approach, which we're refining with all of those stakeholders, um, we think is very innovative, quite different, makes significantly reduced demands on government at every level, has a much higher degree of engagement by the private sector, including in investments immediately. And we think it will be very compelling domestically and internationally. So can you give us a sneak peek on more of what you just uh, told us? Yeah, sure. So so first of all, we wanted to, to move away from the concept of a bid being something that happens 10 years from now and turn it into more of a movement that can begin now with the the variety of, of stakeholders and partners that we already have as part of this, this effort, which include notably a variety of First Nations, a huge number of, of universities and academic institutions, a growing group of private sector partners, etc. How could we bring those groups together right now in a meaningful way that was about a movement focused on something uh, that I think has very broad community acceptance? And in our case, that's really about promoting sustainability and wellness in a variety of different ways. What partners do we need to bring in to affect that? And then how can we activate it right now? And we're looking to do that in a couple of really notable ways. I mentioned earlier that we're looking to hugely elevate the degree of investment and participation of the private sector as something that's critical to the, the viability of games. Uh, you know, generally speaking, they're problematic because they cost too much taxpayers' money. They're focused on an event uh, rather than community need, and we wanted to turn that upside down. So we've got plans around the um, alignment of a variety of large infrastructure projects that are being advanced by the private sector, but are going to be done in a different way. And in the city of Hamilton, that has to do very significantly with the downtown urban redevelopment project, which I think most listening will be aware. That project led by Games CEO PJ Mercanti, who also heads the consortium developing those lands downtown, will begin a consultation process uh, publicly that involves Dialogue, an urban design firm, and Conference Board of Canada to create uh, an approach seeking community feedback that's focused on how to make all of this development um, more aligned with the values that the game speaks to, especially sustainability. And of course, a moment ago, there was a reference to um, climate action. This is the central pillar of our work. How can we bring the entire community in that? We're looking to do it right right now around existing community projects that are all aligned with the games and will be game venues in the end. And this is happening in other municipalities as well. Our guest is Lou Forporty, spokesperson for Hamilton 100, as uh, Hamilton's 2030 Commonwealth Games bid takes its next step in this process. And you mentioned an elevated uh, percentage, I guess, of private sector investments. W- what level are we going to see here? Well, All of that's, of course, being worked through, but what we're looking to do is to um, ensure that the overwhelming majority of any infrastructure investments around facilities that are games-related are assumed almost entirely by the private sector on a for-profit basis, rather than insisting uh, or proposing that it be subsidized by government. And this is intended to address a few things. First of all, we, we want to look to create assets in the region that are viable from a financial perspective and aren't white elephants. We, we want to do so in a way that activates and promotes and supports existing businesses and business ventures and communities rather than creating new government subsidized projects. Uh, there's an enormous need in the region in a variety of areas for these assets and they can be 
constructed and financed in a way that is commercially reasonable. There is such an enormous amount of sports and recreational infrastructure uh, in the province. Almost all of the games and needs as we anticipate them can be met with a host of the existing facilities, in some cases improved. And what we've done is to create a process by which, in conjunction with municipalities and the province, we can identify areas that have specific needs in terms of recreational infrastructure and then catalyze private sector support to create them uh, on agreements to be negotiated over time. And in Hamilton's case, our resolve in discussion with the city of Hamilton has been to say that we are not proposed or preparing uh, or anticipate asking the city for any financial support or contribution in relation to games investments in the city. Uh, we're, we're going to maintain that posture with other municipalities. What we are going to do instead is to say, if you city have a specific need that you feel you would like the games to activate, then we'd be delighted to work with you and bring in private sector partners to see whether that can be done without any obligation on the part of any municipality or senior level of government with respect to those assets or initiatives. And that's a really radical departure from where we were before and where games of this type uh, have been at all. Lou, we're really pressed for time. We've got about 30 seconds or so. When do you submit this to the Commonwealth Games Federation, and when do you get a yay or nay from that group? Well, we won't be submitting anything until them, um, uh, until some point next year. The yay or nay could take probably until 2023, but we are going to be reaching out to the public in October in a variety of ways, soliciting the public's feedback on they, what they would like to see in the bid in relation to infrastructure and and other supports uh, in their communities. And that consultation process and feedback will be critical to our success. Very much so. Lou, uh, we will certainly catch up sometime down the road. Really appreciate the time today. Okay, my pleasure. Take care. You too. That's Lou Forporty, spokesperson for Hamilton 100 is the uh, Hamilton 2030 Commonwealth Games bid. uh, Revs up its engine to, uh, to take a next step in the process. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. A consultant's report says the city of Hamilton must have a stronger workplace culture of equity, diversity, and inclusion. The report from Ernst & Young suggests failing to address this need will cost the city millions of dollars a year in staff turnover and lower productivity. Joining us to chat about this is Councillor Narinder Nan. Narinder, good morning. Morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm doing good. So, councillors have voted in favor of hiring three full time employees to help implement a new equity, diversity, and inclusion framework. What could this framework look like? Yeah, essentially, it is an opportunity to address those gaps that you had mentioned in the start off. It is an opportunity to look at the reality that in the city of Hamilton, our workforce, uh, as it is represented by women, is all about 50%. Yet, when we look at positions of decision-making power, only 30% um, of women are in supervisory positions. And when we look at Black, Indigenous, and racialized uh, residents making up our workforce, we're looking at only 11% of all of the people who work at the city of Hamilton identifying as Black, Indigenous, or racialized. So it, number one, acknowledges that there are these structural gaps. And what we're aiming to do is not continue to have a conversation of afterthought, but instead say that this is something that we need to address from the onset. It needs to be embedded not only in our culture, but we have to create some systemic change in this organization for us to live into this mandate of creating a city and serving a city that is the best place to raise a child and age successfully for 
all Hamiltonians. So will the framework basically suggest to uh, hire more or promote more uh, people of color or uh, just to fill those inclusion, equity, diversity buckets? No, it's not a quota system, okay. and quota systems have been proven to fail. Fundamentally, this is a, I'd say, phase one uh, approach right now, and it's focusing a lot around the foundational piece, which is uh, giving staff and leadership and council an opportunity to learn a whole lot more about what equity, diversity, and inclusion is, and to address something that's considered um, kind of, you know, the elephant in the room often, which is our unconscious bias or our predetermined way of thinking that governs a lot of our decision-making. It's as little as and simple as, you know, people not considering those who don't look like them in the decision-making that they're making perhaps around service delivery, or perhaps around a unique set of needs in our community that need to be addressed from a governing perspective, for example. So we're starting off with uh, foundational training. Uh, It will then move into um, a lot (laughs) regarding leadership competencies, decision-making. It will look at how our structures and decision-making as it relates to business cases, Uh, as it relates to talent development, as it relates to uh, an overall cultural sense of belonging, not just from a, you know, kumbaya perspective, but much more from the perspective of the people who are women and racialized um, feel like their input is being heard, that their ideas are helping shape the future of customer service and resident service, but also the outcomes for our population. It will move on then to uh, what every good EDI program does, which is tracking and measuring our progress. So those stats that you mentioned early off, Rick, uh, is what we're doing, making a difference. And that's going to be the most important piece of this work. Another big uh, important piece is uh, saving a lot of money. It it seems like a lot of people have left the city because of this EDI issue or or, or lack thereof uh, policy, uh, and it's costing millions of dollars and failing to, you know, improve the situation is going to cost so much more. Yeah, so one of the most stark statistics that uh, came from the consultants at Ernst Young was the cost of the status quo, the cost of not doing things differently. And through attrition alone, um, it's estimated that we could be saving up to uh, anywhere between the ballpark of $3 million to $9 million when you take into account the cost of human rights complaints, the cost of uh, investigating, you know, 128, uh, you know, incidences of of, uh, inequity and um, 23 cases since 2017 alone. So, you know, uh, that cost of staying status quo ranges from three to nine million dollars. And the amount of investment right now that we're looking at is two hundred thousand dollars. And it's not even going to be coming out of um, pack taxpayers money. It's coming out of a reserve account, which enables us to get cracking on this work. Right. And in, in this fall and into early 2022. And then the thing that's going to be most important is that it's not a one time cost. It's something that we're going to integrate moving forward. So those three staff positions that you mentioned will be an annual cost moving forward. And um, again, I said it uh, last Wednesday, I'll say it again, Rick, this is about investing in making our city a better place and making the municipality as a corporation a healthier place, but also making sure that we have some accountability to make sure our residents who've been marginalized um, have some faith that that their needs are being integrated into the way that we provide our services. We got to run, Render Dan, really appreciate the time today. 
My pleasure. Take uh, care, Rick. You too. That is Councillor Narendra Nan joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Diving deeper into the big story of the weekend, the two Michaels returning to Canada. Wasn't that a whirlwind of a day on Friday and Saturday? Their return, the Prime Minister meeting them at the airport in Calgary after nearly three years imprisoned in China on espionage charges. Their release from Canada, or at least release from custody, I should say, their flight home to Canada, uh, came on the same day as Huawei Executive Meng Wanzhou reached a deal with U.S. prosecutors over fraud and conspiracy charges involving American sanctions against Iran. And she was off to China, the two Michaels here to Canada, and uh, we are certainly happy in this nation, that is for sure. Rachel Gilmore is a national online journalist with Global News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rachel. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, as I said, a whirlwind of a day on Friday, a lot of moving parts on that day. How did this all come about? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wish I had all the details, but uh, unfortunately, quite a bit of this happened behind closed doors. But I can tell you, what we do know is that the U.S. struck a deal with Meng Wanzhou, and as a part of that deal, they dropped their extradition request, which was the whole reason that Canada arrested Meng Wanzhou in the first place, was at the U.S.'s behest. So uh, because they dropped that, Canada was able to release Meng Wanzhou. She went back to China, and as her plane you know, crossed over, it actually passed the plane carrying the two Michaels who were on their way back as well. Wow. That is unbelievable. And I don't think, I think, you know, adding to this whole intriguing story uh, and depressing story at times was, I don't think anyone expected the two Michaels to be released that quickly after this issue with Ms. Meng was resolved. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of experts were really surprised by that. You saw, I don't know if you were on Twitter, but there were people just constantly saying, I am so wrong and I'm so happy to be so wrong because quite a few people thought it would be months. Uh, The one person who I did hear actually say that they expected it to be really fast was Kevin Garrett, who uh, was a Canadian who was also detained in China and had a similar sort of situation where, you know, once the case that uh, China appeared to be retaliating for uh, was addressed in Canada, uh, he ended up on a flight back home. And, you know, it did take a few months in between. But for him, as soon as he went to trial, it was 36 hours until he was on a flight. So he said it could be really, really quick. And uh, it looks like he was right. <laughs> Definitely so. And uh, we're thankful for that, for sure. How are officials in China framing the return of Meng Wanzhou? So, there, I mean, the return of Meng Wanzhou, she was greeted with, you know, a red carpet, flowers. They obviously have sort of tried to imply that Canada was baselessly holding Meng Wanzhou. Um, but clearly, you know, it was all within the rule of law. She, she had been accused of a number of crimes in the U.S. And Canada has an extradition uh, treaty with the U.S. So it was all in accordance with uh, the way it worked for anyone else. But uh, obviously, the two Michaels are getting a bit of a different framing from China. They're saying that uh, China, that is, is saying that the two Michaels were freed for health reasons. Um, And I don't know if you uh, saw the same footage I saw, but they they looked pretty healthy when they arrived, maybe a bit tired and uh, may have lost a few pounds, but they they appeared healthy. So, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear that this was all tit for tat retaliation from China and uh, but they are still trying to say that it was not. 
Wow. Rachel Gilmore is our guest, national online journalist with Global News. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Much has been made about the strained relationship between Canada and China. What do you make of it? And could this latest development trigger a smoothing of relations? Well, it certainly helps. It puts Canada on a better path because obviously the relationship was at a total standstill um, while the two Michaels were still in China. But, you know, it's I don't think it's going to be the same. You know, one expert um, that we spoke with said that it, it could be, you know, decades before we get back into a very good place. Um, and, you know, a big part of that as well is the fact that there are still 115 Canadians detained in China. You know, it's for a variety of reasons. Perhaps not all of those are arbitrary, but, uh, you know, there's many instances of Canadians ending up on death row, and Canada obviously opposes that and has been seeking clemency for those people, but isn't getting it. And there's the case of Robert Schellenberg, who, you know, right after Meng Wanzhou was arrested, he was already facing jail time in China, but they bumped that up to a death sentence. And that hasn't changed. So there are still many issues between Canada and China. Mark Garneau, the foreign affairs minister, said that we are engaging with them with eyes wide open going forward. But, you know, I I do think it's going to be a very long time before the two nations can trust each other again, if ever. Is there any progress in getting those 100 plus Canadians out of China or is that going to be, uh, you know, a tough go because there are so many? Well, I think that one thing that makes it quite tough is, you know, first and foremost, obviously, there's quite a few of them. Um, But secondly, um, some of them have, you know, charges against them for crimes they may or may not have committed. Quite a few of them maintain their innocence. Um, But, you know, China has a 99.9% conviction rate. So, you know, that it's difficult because in the cases of the two Michaels, they were clearly trumped up charges, as the government said regularly. I, I don't know for a fact that all of the 115 cases are. And additionally, you know, we lost the leverage of having Meng Wanzhou here. Obviously, Canada was not using the the detention of Meng Wanzhou or the arrest of Meng Wanzhou in that way because we are a nation of rule of law. So we were just following those processes. But from China's perspective, that was leverage. So, you know, it, it, it makes me a bit concerned. Canada says that they're still working on things behind the scenes, but, uh, you know, it, it is mildly worrying that Robert Schellenberg's name didn't come up once on Friday. Very much so. Rachel, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Rachel Gilmore is a national online journalist with Global News, chatting to us about uh, the uh, two Michaels returning home. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Well, you've heard about the semiconductor chip shortage that has slowed down the global auto sector, and you maybe have been impacted by the recent lumber shortage that we encountered. Well, now there's a noble, another global shortage on the horizon, and this one has to deal with rubber. Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Marvin. Well, good morning, Rick. What's going on with the rubber industry? Well, first, if you don't mind, I'm going to be a little bit of a doubting Thomas on this. Let me try to explain. Since March of this year, there have been stories almost every six weeks about the looming rubber shortage. Get your tires now. Get your summer tires. Get your winter tires. You'd better get them now because there may be... And I'm not actually sure how true this one is. 
but they're playing into that fear that you talked about earlier, which is the, the, the supply chain fears. Now, the theory goes like this. Uh, thanks to that boat that got stuck in the Suez Canal, that caused a problem with shipping. We have a little bit of lack of containers where we want them to be. We also have a little lack of supply of raw materials. And, of course, that old old boogie person, you know, China, they're sucking up all the rubber they can to make tires for their cars. So, you know, folks, the, the, there could be a shortage coming, could be a shortage coming. But, you know, people have been saying this now for six months, and so far the companies themselves, Goodyear, Michelin, what have you, they've all said, no, we're, we're okay, thanks, and nothing to worry about here. So I just I don't know how real this one is as comparison to the other ones you chatted about. So this is, uh, we shouldn't be worried about buying winter tires. We're, we're okay. Well, the, the, again, the way the story goes, you know, if you're thinking about winter tires, get out there now. Get them on now. It's never too... And, and you hear that story a lot, actually, from people. They say, don't wait for the weather to get cold. Get in there when you can. And, and, you know, winter's always just around the corner. We could get a cold snap, and you'll regret. So there is some truth to this. I think if, if you're one of those people who want winter tires, don't delay. Get out there. Get it. But I'm not sure there's going to be the same shortage the same way. This is much more a supply story, I think, rather than a supply chain story. The concern is that the, uh, many of these companies do make tires in China, and if China's buying more tires, then are we going to get them over here? There's some reason to understand that story, but as I say, it's been going on for six months, and so far, nothing's happened. Regarding the semiconductor chip shortage, which yep. is very much real, is that coming to an end soon? Yes. Well, let me let me just back up a half a second and talk about first about lumber. That was your first example here. The the lumber one was again a supply issue last year when COVID hit. The lumber industry said, "Well, why are people going to want to buy lumber when they're hunkering at home? They're going to be, you know, in their bunkers trying to deal with with COVID." And that was true for most of 2020. But when 2021 dawned, after being in our bunkers for so many months, people looked around and said, "You know, I'm getting tired of that bathroom. It's time we finish the basement. Hey, let's put a new deck." And people rushed out at the start of this year to buy lumber, but that wasn't there. The lumber industry was not cutting down trees and turning it into good dried timber, uh, and so we had a shortage, and the price shot up. Then they said, okay, okay, if you want it, we'll start doing it, and sure enough, they did, and now we've got the opposite problem. The market is flooded with, with lumber out there, and prices have just fallen right down to the ground. Semiconductors, the same kind of a problem. A year ago, when COVID first struck, uh, we were all getting ready to be taking classes from home and working from home, so, well, we'd better get a better computer, we'd better get a better tablet, maybe this is the time to get a new smartphone, and, and as those things uh, were sucking up computer chips, we didn't have those semiconductor chips for things like automobiles, and so there are still today parking lots full of new automobiles that look perfectly fine to drive, but they don't have their semiconductors in them. Again, the industry has responded. They've cranked up production, and we believe that shortage is going to be over probably by early December. And this has had a huge impact on the auto sector in the, in, in, to the tune of like billions of dollars. Yes, well, billions of dollars in the sense that it, they're not moving through. What, what, what you need to do in any kind of manufacturing industry is not produce product to put into inventory. You want to produce product that people are buying, and as they buy it, that gives you back cash. That keeps everything all nicely greased. Everything's moving nicely with all that money. And instead, if you have parking lots full of cars that you can't sell, 
you've got cash tied up in that inventory you can't free. So in that sense, it's billions of dollars, but it would be billions of dollars of delayed sales. We believe they're going to be able to sell those vehicles once they get the chips. It's just that rather than selling today, it's three months, six months. And so there's a, you know, a cash flow issue from all of this. But we do think it is going to get resolved in the next two to three months. Is there any other real shortage we should be concerned about? Well, the other, the other one that most people have noticed is around meat. So uh, you may have noticed that beef prices have gone up quite dramatically over the last year, not as much with pork and chicken, although both of them have gone up a bit as well. And that, again, is a supply issue. Uh, again, thanks to COVID and the fear about transmitting COVID, uh, companies instituted new protocols. Let's make sure we're not spreading them on things. Let's slow the production down. In some cases, some of the plants did have COVID outbreaks, and they were shut down to do a thorough cleaning, all those sorts of things. And that has disrupted that supply chain. Um, the hope, again, is that by about Christmas time or the start of the next year, 2022, we should start to see a better, more even supply of those things, and hopefully prices come down a little bit. But for 2021, it has been a year of sort of one shortage after another after another. Very much so. Marvin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, giving us some details on the latest shortage. Seems to be more of a ruse than anything else in terms of the rubber shortage. So yes, if you are in the market to get your winter tires, you don't have to absolutely scramble to get them. They will be available. So that's some pretty good news. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Zamperin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.